This is Sally Osberg. And this is Roger Martin, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings an outstanding thinker, or thinkers in today's episode's case, to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 706 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader starter kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 706 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Roger Martin and Sally Osberg. Roger is an intellectual hero of mine. Longtime listeners to the show will know that. He's the author of some amazing work in the strategy realm and also of The Opposable Mind, which ranks among my top five most influential business books of all time. And Sally Osberg is the head of the Skoll Foundation. Now, together, they are two brilliant thinkers in the world of social entrepreneurship. And that is the subject of their new book, Getting Beyond Better. Now, I know what you might be thinking. I'm not a social entrepreneur, and that's okay. Whether you're in a big firm, whether you start your own firm, or whether you're a stay-at-home parent, there are amazing lessons in this interview for not just how social entrepreneurship works, but how any transformational effort works. So regardless of where you stand, you might be a social entrepreneur and not even know it, but regardless of where you think you are, all of us can lead transformation, and Getting Beyond Better provides an amazing manual for that. So without further ado, listen to our interview with Roger Martin and Sally Osberg. So who are you and what do you do? Well, I have the great privilege of being the president and CEO of the Skull Foundation. And um, uh, as the president and CEO of the Skull Foundation, I get the great um, pleasure of investing in social entrepreneurs working all over the world to solve the world's most pressing problems. And uh, I am a professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. I direct something called the Martin Prosperity Institute there, and one of the great pleasures in my life has been to have been a member of the School Foundation Board working with Sally Osford uh, for the last uh, uh, almost 15 years, investing in those social entrepreneurs. And that and that uh, pleasure has been has been mutual. And as we get into this discussion, I'll be able to share just how um, essentially Roger has um, uh, helped us evolve the strategy for the Skull Foundation. Oh, so I I have to um, I have to comment on one thing as we as we go through here, which is those of you who are listening, you'll have heard them introduce themselves in maybe thirty seconds, and you'll you'll see you'll notice two things: one, the mutual admiration and respect; two how quickly they said all of the things that they they do so they they made it sound like you know oh yeah just i do this and i do this and then when you actually i'm sitting here on the other end thinking about the magnitude involved in everything that you all do i don't actually know when you sleep um i've been trying to figure, i've known roger for a little while i've been trying to figure that out sally and i have just met each other last month uh, and i'm guessing you probably have a similar sleep pattern you guys are tackling some pretty big challenges uh, i hope there's room for sleep and maybe a netflix tv series or two in there at some point 
I love sleep. People think I don't sleep, but I absolutely love sleep. I, I try to sleep soundly. I usually uh, am asleep within 60 seconds of my bed hitting the pillow, or my head hitting the uh, pillow. So, uh, so I, uh, I, I sleep, is, sleep is good. <laughs> well, that's the that's that's a sign of someone who's um, who's putting his life's work to good use. You sleep with a clear conscience, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I suppose I would see now you've made me feel bad. I was going to say that now I'm I have intellectual envy of one other thing Roger does which is sleep. But mine's not really a, a, a from having an unclear conscience. It's from having a 3-year-old and a 1-year-old. So that's the reason I don't <laughs> sleep that soundly. But Anyway, so we're we're here um, not only because the work that you that you both have been doing through the Skull Foundation and the work that um, you both the content that you've both been putting out there into the world to, that really does serve and make the world a better place through a variety of means um, is in, is summarized in this wonderful little book. Um, I say little; it's not actually that little. Although I read it really quickly, so maybe that it maybe we'll call it little that way. The book is getting beyond better. How social entrepreneurship works. It's an awesome review of a lot of different concepts around social entrepreneurship. But in particular, what makes social entrepreneurship successful and the stages that we can that that scaling a, a viable social entrepreneurship enterprise goes through. And I think what's what's really interesting to me is that this is a term that is really, really crowded. So I wondered if we could start there with let's define our terms. And when we say social entrepreneurship, what do we mean? Because I feel like there's a lot of people that when they say social entrepreneurship, they think, oh, it's got to be this for benefit company or it's got to be this. It's got to be a for profit or it's nonprofits who just act more like business, which I've always had a problem with saying nonprofits should act more like business. But that's a different monologue altogether. So what do we mean when we say social entrepreneurship? Well, let me let me uh, start here and just give you a little background. And um, this goes right to the point of how critical Roger has been as a director of the Skoll Foundation. Um, when I when I go back to the beginning, and that's Jeff Skoll's first creating the foundation, it was clear Jeff knew the kind of person he wanted to invest in. He wanted to see leverage his philanthropic resource and his vision for the world. And that person looked an awful lot like a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. The difference was that that individual or those sets of individuals were really focused on solving societal problems and not just commercial commercial opportunities and problems. And with that, we actually started our work at the Skoll Foundation. We never heard the term social entrepreneurship. And it was when Roger joined the board as we were seeking out and investing in these people that he felt it was critical we really understand what we were doing and we understand and put forward a definition about just who these social entrepreneurs were and what made them distinctive. And I think Roger can really articulate what, what was essential to that definition. Sure. Uh, and, and it was a fun process. And, and really, we looked to entrepreneurship data first to say, well, what? Why are we so enthused about entrepreneurs, and what kind of entrepreneurs are we enthused about? And and really, if you look at it, the thing that's in common among the entrepreneurs that the world says, "Wow, thank goodness for these people," is that they take on what is a, a kind of a stable but not terribly pleasant situation, uh, and create some vehicle, a product or a service, that transforms that to a better equilibrium. So if you just take Fred Smith, the legendary founder of FedEx, he took on a situation where if you're going to send a package somewhere, you 
you got to, went to a local package delivery company and they took your pick up your package. They gave it to an air carrier who took it to the city that you wanted it to go to and they handed it off to another local package delivery uh, company and they hopefully delivered it. And if it didn't get there, which it often didn't because those were three different parties and they didn't communicate well, they'd just point their finger at one another and say it's their fault. And meanwhile, the person who needed the package delivered is sitting there saying, yes, but I, I don't care who's, like, who, who says who did what to whom. I just want my package there. And so Fred Smith looked at that and said, that's a kind of an unpleasant equilibrium where the people who really want packages there can't get them there. There is no reliable service, so I'll create FedEx, and we'll have our trucks pick up the package. They'll get to our planes. They'll all fly to Memphis, and then they'll uh, fly out on another one of our, our, our planes and be delivered to our, uh, uh, our van, which will deliver to you, and we'll keep track of that package the whole time. In fact, you can start going online and watching exactly where it is, and those packages will absolutely positively be there. That's a transformation. The world is a different place, uh, 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 in a better place after that. So that's, that's our, ended up being our definition. It turns out that in the social space, uh, what social entrepreneurs do is look, up, look at a, and find a, a, a unpleasant equilibrium for some disadvantaged, underprivileged part of the, uh, the population and do something that is transformational for them. It doesn't just improve or ameliorate the whatever pain and suffering is that they solve, uh, uh, but actually transform uh, that. And so for us, social entrepreneurship is transformational equilibrium uh, uh, change. And I, I wonder, so I think the the how they then go about doing it is really interesting to me from a from a business model concept, right? So so Roger, I'm familiar with uh, a, a book that I, I'm, I'm so familiar, I can't remember how long it's been since uh, it came out, but the opposable mind and the ideas of, of integrative thinking, because from a from a business model standpoint or a tactical standpoint, or dare I say a, a strategy standpoint, it's interesting to me because the people that then go about doing this, the social entrepreneurs, they're really, I mean... I don't know when, uh, prior prior to a few years ago, there really weren't very many templates to be copied. There was a lot of people trying to take from this sector and this sector and this sector and kind of blend together to create what would be their business model or their operations <laughs> model, which I really look at as, as sort of a an opposable mind concept. I've been working for the past couple of years with an organization based in the US called FuseCore, which seeks to place entrepreneurs into um, public sector positions, city and state governments. And you see that sort of integrative ideas um, already there. So, do, I mean, did, when you were when you were first starting to work with Skull Foundation and first starting to do work in social entrepreneurship, did you see those sort of parallels between the opposable mind and integrative thinking ideas? Um, you know, probably not initially, but but as as I got into it and working with with Sally on this sort of project to say, well, what really is going on here? It did certainly become more evident that this idea was that they were a proverbial third way that you could actually do something other than have a, a government department uh, uh, or a, a, a for-profit business do something wonderful. There were these, there, there were these creatures uh, in between that, that borrowed the best of, of both. So I would say it wasn't a going-in presumption, but it, it started to become more, more clear. And, and it, also became, it, it also became more clear, too, as we went into the, into the process, because the first step uh, in, in the process that we saw 
you could argue it has, has an integrative sort of feel to it uh, as well, this understanding uh, the current situation uh, and, uh, and the tensions that they have to navigate. Yeah, I actually, that's a, that's a beautiful segue to what uh, I wanted to ask Sally, which was, so the, the book, Getting Beyond Better, the book lays out a fantastic model for that equilibrium change that you that you talked about, and I think it's a it's a model that a variety of different, regardless of the business model or or if you're a creature in between, I love that term, or if you're a, a one of the normal sized creatures, I think there's some benefits to this model. Particularly what I what I love about this is four stages to it, and. Unlike so much popular leadership literature that we've seen in the past, it doesn't actually start with vision, right? The model, the model. I, I want to talk about each stage in turn, but the model actually starts with understanding the world, which I feel like is this grand revelation that oh, if if it if we just got to the point where our vision didn't matter and we first started understanding the world and then let it develop from that, the vision for a new future developed from that, we'd be we'd already be setting ourselves up for better success. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point um, because we do tend to conflate leadership with with this very bold vision of what can be, and we think entrepreneurs too just go right to that go right to that vision and execution. In fact, what we found is that social entrepreneurs really um, spend the time take the take the time to figure out what is going on in this suboptimal equilibrium to understand the forces, to understand the actors, to understand the incentives, the disincentives, how this system got to be the way it is and what holds it in place, what makes it persist. And that turns out to be a really critical phase of the social entrepreneur's journey. So, um, so that understanding process, as you, as you indicated, and back to the opposable mind uh, integrative thinking um, paradigm, uh, really involves the successful navigation of these, of these three tensions. Um, the social entrepreneur often comes from outside the system, and that's what enables her or him to see it for what it is. Often, the social entrepreneur abhors that situation. That, you know, why is it that people can't um, avail themselves of high-quality education or can't have access to potable water, whatever the whatever the situation is? But then they have to appreciate it. They have to really understand and appreciate the context, the culture, the norms that gives rise to that. The um, and so they can't just, you know, wag their fingers and say this is appalling and this should change. They have to appreciate it as well as for it. Then they have to, they often apply expertise because they're, you know, they may come from, you know, positions of public health expertise or, um, or, or educational expertise. At the same time, they have to understand that there's a lot they have to learn. So they apprentice themselves to this, to this population, which has the most stake in solving the problem, but it's actually critical to its having persisted for so long. And finally, they navigate this third tension, experimenting in a very rigorous way to get feedback from their constituents before they actually commit and say this model is robust enough that we can commit to driving this innovation, this new model forward in the world. So navigating those three tensions in that stage of understanding the world is actually key to this discipline of effective social entrepreneurship. And, and I should say it's, you know, re reading the book and listening to you 
talk about it there. There, there are obvious uh, parallels from the design thinking community too, as far as understanding it and empathy, taking that outsider's view, the willingness to experiment, get feedback, etc. So there's there's really a there's a lot of really cool different models here going to play that are all sort of like scratch my my nerdy design thinking, integrative thinking itch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Going on here that I, I didn't, and I didn't even really sort of think about the the design element towards that, but that really does. Mm-hmm. There's some level of of design thinking required almost to to get through this stage, um, and really set and, yourself up for success. And and there's a real and there's a real movement. I, I don't know if you know David, but uh, and and Sally would of course uh, uh, know this uh, in spades because it's been a real theme at the Skull World Farm every year. But but the whole design thinking kind of movement has has, has had a really big impact on. Uh, on social entrepreneurship, and, it, and it's something that uh, lots of social entrepreneurs uh, are, are thinking about. So I think your connection, your connection of that sort of part to 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 what we've written, I think, is a very valid one. Indeed, and it's that it's also that user orientation. So it's that user-centered <laughs> design principle. So if you're designing actually for a constituent that's been marginalized or disadvantaged by some by some persistent equilibrium in the world, that's actually transformational in itself because that's the that's the segment of the population whose whose interests no one is paying attention to. Yeah, yeah, that's where the the, the finger wagging thing comes in. It's sort of like you know. You know, telling farmers you need to be more efficient, uh, you need to use better equipment. You know, there. I mean, that's that's not going to change things. What's going What's going to change things is really thinking from their perspective. Here's the situation they're in right now. What would help them most? Not what do we think uh, uh, would. And so, so be that. Uh, so that user centeredness is is a is an important. Uh, piece of the puzzle, and that doesn't come unless you have that level of, of, of appreciation. Even though you abhor what's going on, you appreciate it at the same time. Yeah, and I think you know there there is there's a leadership lesson in there too, because as I said, a lot of the pop literature talks about when you get to this next phase, the visioning, envisioning a new future. A lot of times, it's t- we talk about the need for leaders to cast their vision, and yet in reality, I think when you look at the the significant the leaders that have made a significant impact in the world, their vision actually sort of comes up from. We could use the term user, user. We could use the term, um, you know, the the followers. We could use a variety of different terms, but it's the idea that it comes sort of out of the people and the leader is just the one that sort of puts it to words and, and actually sort of shapes it. But it's not about getting that quote unquote buy-in that we, we give lip service to so often. It's really about creating a vision that will automatically come with buy-in because it relates to those users and it has empathy for them. And it's really sort of their vision anyway. Yeah. I, any, anybody who talks about getting buy-in has, 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 it sort of committed the the original sin already. Right? <laughs> is that I I want I want to fix this my way, and now I've got to get buy-in. Uh, I don't think that the social entrepreneurs think about getting uh, buy-in. They think about designing a a solution that comes from the user uh, and is and is co-created with uh, the user, so that it's not about it's not. It's not about buying. I mean, they do have to get something that people would normally attribute to or, or describe as buying, but they don't think about it that way, I don't think. Uh, and they go about it in a very different way than the people who say there's this create my answer phase and then there's this buy-in phase. Nope, that's not, that's not going to work. We actually even to just 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 a, a little footnote to this um, to this uh, piece of the con- conversation. We actually had a um, a challenge coming up with the right 
the right way to describe these these stakeholders this social entrepreneur focuses upon because the term beneficiary um, suggests that they are, you know, they're beholden or they're receiving something. And that's that's not right. On the other hand, it's not often a customer who has the resources to, to pay for um, or the power to demand uh, the product or the service that the social entrepreneur is co-designing with the, the constituents. So we, we have to work really hard to come up with this this frame and it's a stakeholder, it's a constituent, it's a this segment of humanity that's disadvantaged. But the social entrepreneur is really serving that segment of humanity and also working in solidarity um, with with those with those folks. So it's a it's a really profound point about how this envisioning piece proceeds. Um, we talk about Writers for Health in the book, this organization co-founded by um, uh, by Barry and Andrea Coleman um, that focuses on the needs of the community health worker, which is the frontline um, guarantor of health services in sub-Saharan Africa. But without adequate transportation and without a system for ensuring vehicles are properly maintained and that and adapted to difficult terrain, motorcycles, for example, being far more um, suitable to navigating the uh, the rough passages throughout the hinterlands of um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, that community health worker is is disadvantaged from the get-go, um, traveling on foot, trying to cover multiple villages, meet with you know myriad myriad um, uh, residents. Give that person re reliable transportation, train them to be able to um, maintain that transportation, and all of a sudden you've got a 10x, 10x improvement in the um, in the quality of health delivery. So that's transformation. That's identifying a need, but focusing on a constituent, this community health worker, unlocking the potential there, and there and thereby. Um, unlocking and, and, and offering the key to, um, uh, to greater health benefit for a much, much greater uh, population um, than previously. That's the new equilibrium that's envisioning that, that new future, that's transformation in, in process. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic example. Um, I I wonder. So we we spent a lot of time talking about the first two stages, the understanding the world and envisioning a new future, especially in the first stage. And I think rightly so, at least when I when I read the book and when I was thinking back on it to get ready for this interview, I really I think underscoring the understanding the world section is is huge. But there are other two, sort of two stages to this process. And and what I think is interesting is that the third building a model for change and fourth scaling the solution. I think it's tempting at this point to think that every single problem, every single equilibrium change that we want to go through is going to be a new road from here. You know, based on what we've done in the first two stages, we're charting a totally new course. There's no parallels. There's no um, uniformity to these different solutions. But you've actually found, especially in building the model, that there are kind of some parallels, even though there are a variety of different potential solutions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in some sense, you know, you know, Sally and I really wanted to have this be a practical, practical book. So in some sense, what we've tried to do is give people kind of, if you will, uh, search vectors you can search along this line of thinking uh, to create a, a, a model for change. Along the line of costs, what could you do to dramatically uh, uh, shift down costs so that you could you could make this model that doesn't work now work uh, and, and expand and scale? Or on the value side, and, and who could potentially deliver value 
uh, to this equation. You're Paul Rice and you say the farmers in Nicaragua don't get enough for their coffee. Well, who's going to give them more for their coffee? Oh, well, if I can think along the, the axis of bring more value into the system from outside, you figure out that American coffee drinkers are willing to pay a little bit more for a cup of fair trade coffee rather than regular coffee. And suddenly that value accrues to the system. And if you create a, create a, uh, uh, a system underneath that, as Paul Rice did with fair trade coffee, to make sure that it, it, uh, it comes back to the, uh, the farmers. They have to be paid a fair price for their, for their uh, coffee for it to be branded fair trade. Boom, you've got a, a model. And so what we try to do is lay out the models that we've seen and give some logic to it, how you could search along various vectors to potentially find the model. Because in the end, it's a creative act. Uh, we have no kind of paint by numbers. Here's how to be a social entrepreneur. Here's how to get a model. It can, it's not that. But we can give people ideas of how to search for and use their creative brains uh, to create that uh, that model. Yeah, and 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 it's it's a uh, um, it's worth underscoring that there, even as we're talking about social entrepreneurship here, there are economics that underpin any suboptimal equilibrium. The social entrepreneur really has to grapple with those economics, and as Roger said, it's a, they can grapple with it on the cost side, they can grapple with it on the value side, they can grapple with it on, on both sides, but, but resetting that equilibrium will require understanding and either cracking the code on costs or driving greater value into the system. So, for example, a good weave, um, this is the organization formerly known as Rugmark, founded by Kailash Satyarthi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize um, last year with Malala Yousafzai. Um, this is a certification program that um, guarantees a consumer that the rug or the carpet she or he is purchasing will not have been made with child labor. So this is a way of creating demand in the marketplace and actually you know, incentivizing that to drive change and to eradicate child labor and, you know, forced forced labor in the carpet weaving industry, um, greater value into the system, um, transforming, transforming that status quo forever. And that Good Weave has succeeded in, in actually driving down what are horrific, horrific numbers, especially in India, in the carpet weaving industry is really... Um, Cause, cause to celebrate. And, and if I can just say this, since you're an integrative thinking aficionado, David, it, there's, it, there's another echo of that here, which is, which is the first couple of stages probably are more kind of, of, of the process are a little more heart uh, kind of uh, uh, stages. They're, they're, they're the emotions and the heart. But the third stage says, in addition to having all of that heart, that desire to transform that empathy and understanding, you also have to kind of crunch the numbers and, and actually think about think about the economics that Sally said. And so that's, again, these social entrepreneurs are able to do both of those things. They're not just enthusiasts. They're enthusiasts who are willing to essentially put the proverbial pencil to paper to say, how would I make this kind of economic model actually work? Yeah, there's that. 
there's a there's a real discipline um, to this work, as as okay. Roger says. The social entrepreneurs bring a lot of heart. They also bring a lot of head, and that's the you know that's the that's the secret sort of integration <laughs> that really makes this work. Yeah, I love that you said you know there's. There's a there's a lot of work to be done. There's a discipline to it, and now at least there's uh you know I'm I'm gonna give a glaringly obvious ad for the book. Now at least there's a training manual for said discipline, right? Um, get the book again is getting beyond better how social entrepreneurship works. It's it's a fascinating read, even if you I mean honestly even if you don't fancy yourself a social entrepreneur, but that that idea of changing a suboptimal equilibrium, that whole idea. Um, and getting uh, just making the world sort of better appeals to you, you might actually be a social entrepreneur. Uh, you might be headed for social entrepreneurship without even knowing it, if, if that's the goal you're trying to attain. And if so, check the book out, Getting Beyond Better. Sally and Roger, it's time to ask you our questions that we ask all guests. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of lightning round, as it were. Um, five questions that peek inside your, your heads. The first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Sally, you go first. Um, go with growth, and this was um, this was meant to say whatever's going to grow you, um, that's that's going to speak to what's in your best interest. Um, for me, it was uh, Chris Ardress, uh, uh, beloved the late Chris Ardress professor, who uh, the advice he gave me on is is don't give unactionable advice. Ask the question with the, whatever advice you give. Are they able to take uh, action on it, or is the advice the moral equivalent of grow taller, be smarter? Hmm. Um, what's the average day look like for you? I have no average day. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. All um, right, so that's a pass to Roger. Yeah, and for, for me, it's it's just I'm an early riser and uh, early to bed. So I, um, you know, most of my days start at. Uh, probably 5.30-ish with an hour workout, uh, and then uh, hopefully high productivity, which uh, fades into just about nothingness by uh, 9 or 10 o'clock at at night. That's why Roger gets so much done. (laughs) (laughs) Astonishing. It it is sort of fascinating, and now now I figured it out. That was there was a subtle reason I really wanted to know that question, which is now I know what an average day like is for Roger. Let's see if it works for David. Um, what are you both reading right now? Well, I'm reading, um, uh, and it's it's actually a, it's a great read because you can dip in and out of it. Um, I'm reading The Road to Character by David Brooks, um, and one of the one of the things that's delighted me about it is not only are there some profiles of people I would consider social entrepreneur, social entrepreneurs um, like Frances Perkins, but um, but there are many women who are profiled in this. And I think uh, that's, another, that's another reason for um, uh, really for my enjoyment of it. Well, I'm reading too. I'm reading uh, the latest uh, uh, Tom Clancy, although he's, he's dead now, so it's whatever. It's the Tom Clancy series novel. Uh, for my trashy thing, and then I'm reading the inner lives of markets. It's uh, how we shape them and they shape us. It's a, it's a book co-written by my uh, friend, uh, editorial director at HBR, Ken Sullivan, and he gave it to me in manuscript form. And so I'm reading it, and he's one smart dude, and it's a pretty interesting book. 
Oh yeah, I've got that. I've got I actually got it marked to email him when the when the advanced copies are available of that because we we had uh, Tim and Ray both on for the org actually twice for the hardback and for the paperback release of the org. Okay, um, and they're both you know sort of brilliant, right? And so it's interesting too because Tim is such a brilliant editor. It's great to see when he actually puts the writer hat on um, as well. Yeah. So here's our here's the the fourth question, and really it should probably be the last question. Um, what do you believe that most people don't? Well, I believe in that idealism is innate um, and that, uh, you know, we unlearn it. Um, but it's a precious resource and um, we're born with it. Um, I believe there is no such thing as, no useful such thing as execution. Uh, that the reason that we have a challenge in execution, getting things done, is because we call it execution. Uh, everybody makes choices, and calling some of them a strategy and some of them execution is one of the greatest damaging concepts in the entire world of management. It's funny you say that, actually. I, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sam. I would. I, 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 amen. <laughs> yeah, I, amen as well. It's funny that you say that. I actually was biting my tongue because I didn't want to go down on a tangent when we were talking about buy-in um, from where the strategy and execution fallacy could happen in social entrepreneurship. That idea, again, that you just say what to do and then they go and do it instead of thinking, uh, instead of having a collaborative process to figure that all out. So there was a huge tangent there that I wanted to avoid, but um, but I think you summed it up perfectly and that's that idea that there is no useful thing as execution. I think it applies in, in getting beyond better as well. So our, mm-hmm. final, our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your views, what makes someone a leader? Well, that's, a, that's just such a profound question. And, um, you know, this fall, I think it was um, wonderful to see how the world embraced, you know, a, a pope and a young girl, Malala Yousafzai, and of course, of course, Pope Francis as epitomizing what they believe real leadership is. So I think that that real leaders tap into human goodness, and with that, they unleash human greatness. And that's the way I think about leadership. Well, I think that's probably you know better than anything I can uh, uh, come up with. Sally uh, is always so eloquent. Um, I, the, the 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 only thing I'd add is is when I when I whenever I look at somebody who is called a leader, I see absolute love and adoration for their followers. People often say, "Oh, the followers love the leader." They do, but they're just paying back what the leader is doing to them. So, leaders are people who have such love for their followers that they want those people to, to, to they want to help those people uh, do the things they want to do. So it's a love-based uh, thing, I, I think. And, and that's why there's so, so much of a, uh, a bond. It isn't one way. It's, it's two ways, but it starts with the leader loving uh, a, a group of people and wanting to help them. I'll, I'll say amen to that, and that actually is, an, is also saying an amen to Sally's definition. Those are, those are great thoughts and great mm-hmm. definitions. So the book, again, Getting Beyond Better, How Social Entrepreneurship Works. It's a fantastic manual for the discipline of social entrepreneurship or really anybody that wants to um, make some positive change in a suboptimal equilibrium. Um, it, whether you call yourself a social entrepreneur now or you're leading an initiative and you suddenly realize in this interview that you are one, pick up the book. It's fantastic. Uh, Sally and 
and Roger, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David. This was a great pleasure. Uh, likewise, uh, I would say anytime, David.